I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of News World... Over 2.1 million migrants have crossed the United States southern border this year. In August alone, there have been 203,597 border encounters. The mayor of El Paso, Texas, Oscar Leeser, was on ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos on Sunday, September 18th, and he said the city of El Paso has had between 1,500 and 1,900 migrants coming into their city per day. And he estimated 80% of the migrants were coming from Venezuela. The city of El Paso and the U.S. Border Patrol are working together to manage the huge influx of migrants. The city of El Paso is busing migrants to their destination. Remarkably, 50% of the migrants do not have a sponsor or the money to get to their final destination. So I want to talk to some people who are on the ground in El Paso managing the migrant crisis on a day-to-day basis. So I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, El Paso City Manager Tommy Gonzalez and Deputy City Manager of Public Safety, Mario D'Agostino. Thank you both for joining me on Newt's World. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having us. Tommy, if you don't mind, I thought I would start with you. You've been El Paso City Manager since June of 2014, and you've had, I think, 12,000 migrants went through in 14, and so far this year, 
258,000 migrants. How have things changed and how are you coping with this extraordinary scale of people? What is the normal population of El Paso? We're 700,000 people. And this has been going on since late 2018. So we've been managing this crisis for quite some time. And the reason why it's been more of a manageable situation is a lot of these folks that have been crossing have had sponsors, meaning they have family members, they have networks within the interior to connect to different destination points. It wasn't until recently that we had a big influx of Venezuelans who were not sponsored. And that's been the big concern or the fine the ointment, so to speak, in that it's really impacted the operational flow of how we've been managing this crisis. And so when we had that influx, we really looked at reimagining how we would accept the different migrants that we were receiving. And we really looked at how we welcome, process them in a more of a triage center, and then how we were able to shelter them, give them food and water, and then transport them to their final destination. And we have been doing that for some time now. I mean, we were transferring some to Dallas, some to Denver, some to Albuquerque, just by a matter of course of the operation flow and how we were doing things. And it wasn't until recently that when the Venezuelans crossed, they wanted to go to New York. They requested that. And so we chartered a bus in order to move them on out because we don't have a long-term sheltering process here. What we do for sheltering is we put them up in hotels. In terms of how that's impacted our organization, you know, we have over 100 people that we had to pull from other departments in order to run this operation. And so that does impact us because during COVID, just like everywhere else, we have had an impact on the number of people that work for us. We're, we're over a thousand positions down at the city. And then when you add another hundred plus positions that you move from other departments, it does impact how we provide services to our city. And so that has been a challenge. So, I mean, this is a national problem, but who's paying for all this? So what we have been doing is we enacted a local emergency ordinance and we have had costs that we've incurred and we've submitted to federal government. We just got reimbursed for a request from December of 2021, which took several months. And then we've been told we're going to get reimbursements for the first and second quarter of 22, which those weren't that big in terms of dollars. I mean, it, it, they weren't insignificant, but we haven't gotten that reimbursement. We're told we're going to get that this week as well. And then we recently heard that we're going to get $2 million dollars for the future costs. And then we still are going to submit for another $3 million that we've incurred since that second and third quarter and where we're at today in terms of dealing with the crisis. And does that cover both housing and feeding them and transporting them out of the city? Yes, we submit all of those charges. And then when we get those reimbursements, we find out what got reimbursed. And so far, so good. I mean, there was one question on one set of expenses, and we're resubmitting those but that's the plan. The plan is for us to be reimbursed for that because right now we're holding on to $3 million worth of costs that we had to front load. You've been city manager since June of 2014. How has all of this impacted the city? Well, like I described in how we pull from other departments, the 100 plus positions that we're moving from other departments in order to stand up this operation, that triage center, that processing center, you know, we have lots of people there on staff that are our staff that are processing the individuals and are processing the ones that are sponsored, the migrants that are sponsored, and they get onto a shuttle and they get on their way to where their final destination is. And then they're working also with the non-sponsored and then working with the NGOs in our area. And we have several 
dozens of people, almost 50 people embedded into the NGO process so that we don't lose the NGOs because the NGOs are at their wit's end. Shouldn't the processing be done by the federal government? Just as a matter of theory, I mean, this is a national problem. They're crossing a national border. Shouldn't the federal government be staffed up enough that they could do all the stuff that is currently being handled by the city? So they are doing the processing and then releasing them to the community. That's as far as they're going. So we've asked if we could be actually embedded in the process so we can kind of filter out who's coming, who has sponsorships, where their destinations are, so we can schedule more timely and kind of look at that. But they won't let us into that process. And so they are doing the processing as far as the giving them their permission to stay in the country and wait their next process in whatever their hearing date might be or whatever else they have to do next. They're doing that type of processing, although it's rapid processing from what we understand right now. When we're talking about bringing them into the Welcome Center and processing it from our end, that's to determine whether or not they have a sponsor. You know, in 1819, the vast majority all had sponsors. So it was just a matter of making sure they connected and got onto their travels. This issue right now that we're seeing over the past month has been really highlighted by 50% of the people being released in the community. Those, they don't have sponsors, so they don't have a means to get on. Those are the ones we're actually processing to find out how do we get them to where they're going. And then if they say to you, I want to go to New York, for example, you get them on a bus or a train? That's exactly it. We've been utilizing buses, charter companies. So we contracted with some charter companies, and they're actually making the transports for us. And that's what the federal government then reimburses you for? That's on a reimbursement basis, yes, sir. Has there been any kind of side effect in terms of crime or disruption, or are the people processed through so quickly and cleanly that essentially it's a pass-through, but they're not actually affecting the quality of life in El Paso. You know, well, that's where we also hit. In the past few weeks, there's had been several community releases. And what I mean there is to the streets. And so Customs and Border Patrol, they reached that capacity point. We told them what we could process for the day, what our local NGOs could take care of. And that's the number we work with. They still had excess numbers, so they actually released people to the street. So that caused people camping out in the street, let's say. They're gathering in our downtown community. They set up tents around the Greyhound bus station, and that's where it adds those difficulties and those security concerns, both for their security and residents, people in the area. And so from that, we're having to send our resources out and roving teams to try and connect them to what they need, whether it's transportation or housing until they can get their transportation. So that did have an effect on our community. The rest of the time, when they're brought to our welcoming center, those 400, they come in every morning. As we go through them, 50% of them have sponsors. There's a good portion of those, you know, maybe 20 to 30 a day. Once we give them connection capabilities because they have cell phones, they're actually calling their Uber and they're moving on on their own. And so that does occur. Then the the rest of them, that 170 you might have left of those that have sponsors, they're using the connectivity so they can reach out to their families. They arrange their travels. And then we're actually providing shuttles from there to the local transportation, whether it's Greyhound or the airport. And it's that remaining 200s are the ones we're putting on those charters. As I understand it, you now have a very significant share coming from Venezuela. Has that been a change in terms of point of origin? That really is. And that this is the first group we've seen to this size focusing on coming through El Paso that doesn't have the sponsorship. I remember, I guess it was in the late 70s under Carter, they had a boat lift out of Cuba and Fidel deliberately released criminals out of jail and put all of them on the boat lift. There have been rumors, but are you seeing any significant effort by the Venezuelan government to send people they think are dangerous into the U.S., or is that just a passing thing? 
it's just a passing thing. And, you know, CBP is doing the checks on their end, so we don't have all of that intel. We have been in a lot of communications with them trying to understand what the process is so we can better serve once they're released to the community. And so we're being told they are doing rapid processing, that they're doing like an international check, but we have no cooperative with the country of Venezuela, so they're not able to reach out to them to see what kind of record they have. So if they have something that was just handled within their previous country, that information is not privy to CBP. So all they're able to pick up on when they're doing these checks, from what we understand, is anything on the international. I noticed that you do provide some meals, snacks and meals for people. Is the system now so sophisticated that they're actually arriving at the border in relatively good shape? You know, some are. Some have taken a long trek. We saw some photos just the other day where a charter bus pulled up on the Juarez side of the border, on the Mexican side of the border, they're exiting a charter. They literally walk across the dry riverbed, and then that's their trek. Where that charter come from, we don't have that intel. But you can see, I mean, they're getting dropped off in large numbers. Some are flying into Wattis and making their way over, and some are taking that long journey from what we're hearing, just communicating with them as they're passing through our community, that they took that long journey through the jungles and up through Mexico. I was really surprised when we talked with the mayor of Yuma a couple months ago. He said the range of people, you'd have people show up, for example, from India with luggage, flown into a recent local airport, came across the border, paid their own way, got on the airplane where they already had a reservation, and it was just like travel. I mean, it had nothing to do with the imagery we have of, you know, coyotes coming across the desert and the kind of things they used to make movies about. Yeah, it's a little bit of both nowadays. And so we saw that early in the year. We actually saw a lot of people from Russia, from the Ukraine. They were actually flying in through ending up in Wattis and then crossing over at that point. So we did see those numbers spike. Right now, it's mainly those Venezuelan population that we're seeing. So in some parts, we're seeing deaths in Brooks County, Texas. The sheriff, Martinez, said that his county has seen more migrants this year than Martha's Vineyard, just counting dead bodies. He had some 78 migrants, all victims of the journey, that have been collected from ranch lands in the county. And they had 119 bodies last year. I gather that's a totally different situation than what you're seeing in El Paso. I mean, we do have a lot of injuries. We've had some fatalities when they're crossing. And when the river is flowing at certain types of the year, it really does. It has a lot of currents here in downtown El Paso where it's flowing through the channels. So we do have a lot of water rescues, water recoveries, unfortunately. We're getting a lot of injuries in this region. And so it's not specific to the city of El Paso, but it's the Border Patrol sector here in El Paso. So that goes from Arizona border down through West Texas. And so along this border, we're getting a lot of injuries. People are making a lot of calls to people who are falling off. So they're actually climbing up the fence. And as they're trying to descend their way back down on this side, they're falling. And so there's those kind of injuries, you know, fractured legs and arms. And that is being seen a lot. So when the river is high, I mean, can people come across the bridge? Yes. Right now, they are taking the path of illegal entry and getting processed at that point. I'm not sure what the process is. When U.S. Customs is, they have some capabilities to process, but I think they're limited by the number they can do just because the restraints, they're, they're narrow bridges. They have small offices on those bridges. And so they're limited to how many they can do. People don't want to wait. So they're choosing that other path, which is that illegal entry, because Border Patrol will get them at that point and they just go straight to the processing from there. When you look at this total situation, how important are the nonprofit organizations in helping the system function? They're extremely important, you know, and they've been carrying this lift for decades. And like Mr. Gonzalez just said, city manager, COVID did a number on the country, the entire globe. 
And so we're having trouble filling our employee seats. NGOs are having trouble finding volunteers. So they don't have the same volunteer base they had when we had that big surge in 2018, 2019. They don't exist. That's why we went and hired staff so we can embed them with the NGOs just to keep their capacities up and running. It's more efficient for us to do that than to open other shelters on our own. We're just augmenting them because this is truly what they're used to handling. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of, what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, 
Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our country. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. My new best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, offers strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order an autographed copy of my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at Gingrich360.com book, and we'll ship it directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. It's only available for a limited time. Go to Gingrich360.com book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com book. What do you think has happened that broke with COVID so that it's so much harder now to get people to come back to work or to get people to come back to be volunteers? I mean, it's almost like there's been a significant change in the culture of the country in the last two years. And I'd attribute to that. And it's just those isolation factors. Most of their volunteer pool was elderly people and more senior people. And they heard the fears and the lockdown and the keep isolated. And so that really disconnected them from that. We've had a lot of issues here in our own community. You know, we had to close down the senior centers. And so it puts a strain on that population. And some of those, that's their only outcome is getting out there and meeting people and talking to them at those places, whether it was volunteering or at one of the senior centers. And so when you take that away, as it happened during COVID, they just disconnected. And so they're not getting that group back. Tommy, this is so important to the whole country. I want to ask your opinion. As you look at it, both in trying to staff up for the city and in trying to help work with the NGOs, what's your sense of what changed culturally that has made it so much harder? I mean, we're still the same country, and yet we clearly have some behavior patterns that are different than they were three years ago. Well, I'm retired military, and I look at it from the standpoint of like what occurred and what COVID really did. I mean, it was almost like a bio attack on the whole world, and it impacted everyone's psyche. I think it got into everyone's living rooms, and a lot of people are working from home. They like that, and they have different options today because there's different organizations giving them different options and the pay has changed considerably as well. I know that this current year we gave a 7% increase in pay, and then next year we're doing a 9% increase in pay, and that's still not enough. We're also doing a $1,000 sign-on bonus, and we're still over a 1,000 people short. So it's just a change of mindset, and I do agree we're the same country, but I think that the mindset has definitely shifted. And made it more challenging. One last question about the process of getting to the United States, what's the role of the cartels and how much, since you're literally on the border and next to a major Mexican city, to what extent are you all affected by the reach of the cartels and their potential for violence? So our city, if you think of like the Dallas area, they call that a metroplex. This is a metroplex as well. A lot of folks, that doesn't register with them, but we are on top of the border and the border's on top of us. It's right next door, literally. And as I told you, I was a city manager in Irving, but also was a deputy city manager in Dallas and then a city manager in Harlingen, South Texas. 
And the border in Harlingen is not right next to the city. It's miles away. And so the fact that we're a metroplex here and we have 1.6 million people, 1.7 million across the border that really shop and play and work here in El Paso. And some have houses in both cities that have the means. And you have 700,000 and then with the county and with Las Cruces, another million. We're like two and a half, 2.7 million people. And so we work very closely with one another. So whenever there's a surge on the Juarez side and the cartels have anything to do with it, it obviously has an impact on our economy and our way of life, so to speak. And just by the intel reports we have received, you know, the cartel in terms of how they're moving some of these folks, because some of these folks are involved with them because they have to pay a fee in order to get some help. And then when we've talked to some of the migrants, they've had to pay in every country they've been in. Because I've asked them, how are we treating you here as opposed to how you're treated in other places? And they're not treated very well in their journey. And so once they get here and once they get processed, this is really just a great environment for them. Do you think those of us who are further away, do you think that we exaggerate the potential danger of the cartels and the level of potential violence? Or is it something people just get used to living with? I believe it's very dangerous when the cartels are fighting for position to reposition themselves whenever there's a change in leadership and of those kinds of things. But in terms of does it impact El Paso, it absolutely doesn't impact us from a crime standpoint and very little, if any, and because we're one of the safest cities in America for our size. And a lot of people are befuddled by that because we live right next to Juarez. But a lot of the violence that does take place from time to time there with the cartels really stays there. So I don't know that I'd say people exaggerate it. I would say that it's just start and stops kind of thing. It's sporadic. You've had various estimates. Let me ask the two of you, what would you estimate your number of people per day coming across the border is now? CBP does send us these numbers on the daily. And I think the number this morning was a little over 1,700. And so we reached over 2,000 just this last weekend. The significance here is back in 2018, 19, it took about six months to build up to those levels. And they were never that high. 2000, these are unacceptable numbers. It was nowhere near that back in that time frame. But it took six months to get to the peak. And so those are the ones that are apprehending. What they're releasing to the community today is a little over a thousand. That Those are a thousand day marks. That was the peak of 2019. It took four to six months from when we started seeing that surge till we started seeing those daily releases of a thousand. This time right now, this has all been the, the month of September. So over the last three weeks, we've seen a lot of movement. If you go back into early August, we we're probably seeing two to 250 people released to El Paso a day. Now we're well over a thousand. Apprehensions back then was probably five to 750, what, what the average was. Today, almost 2,000. When you take those numbers, and we're just talking now about El Paso, and then you think of the whole border, what do you think Vice President Harris meant when she said on NBC that the border is secure? I mean, what would an insecure border look like? And I'm not trying to put you on the spot politically. I'm just saying part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast is the gap between what Washington says and what seems to be happening. And we want to make sure the average American has a chance to understand from people who are living it what's going on out there. And it's very different, I think, than the sort of political talk you get up here. 
I would say that there's a process for the migrants. I think once they hit the CBP area, they're really being detained, right? And they're being processed. As the chief said, once they get processed and they get above a certain number because they're at the limit as well. They're very overcrowded at CBP and so they have to then release. So when they release onto the streets, meaning to the NGOs, sometimes just directly to the streets and or to us in the triage center that I referenced, it is a orderly process. And so once they go and get to us, that's whenever we do what I said, we triage them, we shelter them, we feed them, we give them water and we transport them to their final destination and then seek reimbursement from the federal government. So I guess the way I would answer your question is that there is a process that is taking place and it's orderly in that respect. So what we have is an orderly open border rather than a disorderly open border. But it's essentially open, isn't it? I do think that the people that are seeking refuge or are trying to get away from their country for financial reasons or other reasons, they are being given an opportunity to be processed. Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes 
to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, from this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was your reaction to sort of almost panic in Martha's Vineyard where, I mean, 50 people led them to actually call out the National Guard? Do you think it's just the total lack of experience of dealing with any of this? Because you guys are dealing with, based on your numbers, 50 people every half hour. We are the Paso del Norte. We are the Paso del North. People have been migrating through this region for hundreds of years. We all know that. So we see that flow. When you're getting these high numbers, it is concerning. We are working around the clock. We're working tirelessly with the operations that Mr. Gonzalez has talked about from feeding, sheltering, welcoming, processing, and getting them on charters or assisting them get their travels onward. And so it's just a constant flow. If we do not focus our efforts on making sure they connect, because they're not wanting to stay here in El Paso. Their destination is the United States, but they're not looking to stay in El Paso, Texas. They're looking to move onward. The vast majority from talking to our NGOs and what we've seen since we've been heavily involved with this processing center is they, they want East Coast and that's where they want to go. We're providing that route to them because that's where they want to be because you can't sustain it. When we talk about this community and this size, you know, population 700,000, we might be that metroplex, but remember the vast majority is, that, is in another country. And so we, we cannot sustain those numbers here and that's the best way we can utilize our resources to connect them with those travels and i also think that what's being lost in this whole conversation is the fact that before we had the venezuelans come through that did not have the sponsoring in other words the network in the interior of the united states a lot of the people that were crossing and being processed and then that were triaged through us they were going into these major cities anyway or just throughout the country because they had the means and so once they got processed by CBP and were let go, either to the NGOs or onto the streets or through this triage center, they then were going on to their final destination. And so it's been happening the last three or four years. Like I said, we've been working through this since late 2018. And so it hasn't really gotten to this bubbling point because we had a good process. And now the process is being challenged because we have over 50% of what we're receiving from Venezuela and they are not sponsored, meaning they have no network or they don't have as big a network and they don't have the funds. At least not all of them do with respect to the sponsor versus the non-sponsored migrants that we've been receiving before. But they instinctively, if I understand you correctly, the Venezuelans instinctively want to go to New York. That's the vast majority that we've talked to. That's their destination choice. Walking through the processing center and trying to talk to them and kind of get a feel of where they're going and why they want to go there and why they choose there. I'm hearing a lot personally is that 
Well, people they were traveling with who've already been processed and came through, that's where they went. They want to go reunite with those people, whether they knew them from before or they met on the journey. That's their connection to choosing the East Coast. And I've even asked the chief to tell our folks, you know, tell them, do you want to go to this city, to that city and just list the different cities and show them a map. And they still all, like the chief said, want to go to the East Coast. This to me is real news in this sense. Well, there's been a lot of publicity about Governor Abbott's, you know, sending busloads. The fact is, there are lots of busloads going north to New York or Chicago or what have you, because that's where they want to go. And so actually, the total number of busloads that are showing up dwarfs the political news coverage of, you know, the occasional governor sending somebody somewhere, because the fact is, we're sending them anyway. If I understand you correctly, we have a system for helping people move to where they need to get to. That means that there's a steady stream, and just from El Paso alone, let's say, of the 1,900 a day or 1,700 a day, 800 or 1,000 want to go to New York. So you have a steady stream of buses going to New York anyway. So what he was trying to explain there is this process has been going on for years. It's people with sponsors. That's where they're telling us they're going is to the East Coast already. So they've been utilizing commercial airlines, commercial Greyhound buses, and they get to travel on their own. They're sponsored. So that flow has been there. What's highlighted now is all these unsponsored. So now it's actually us, the municipality, chartering these buses to transport them to where they want to go. So the flow has always been there. Now it's just coming in another route. I think the next phase of the operation also, from a national standpoint, as a city manager, I would want to start doing this. If I was in one of those cities, I would want to start looking at programs and how are you going to assimilate the migrants? How are you going to work through housing, work through jobs, work through something? Because they have been processed by the CBP and they have dates in some cases with the court system. And they've acknowledged that's going to take a long time because of the court system being so slow for a lot of reasons. Lack of staffing, just like we've been talking about lack of staffing because of COVID. So that simply exacerbated it. I think that that process has always been slow, but has been exacerbated by COVID. So that's really the next step in this whole process. If we're going to continue to be receiving the numbers like we have been receiving, and it's only growing. When you get to a place like New York or Chicago or Philadelphia, they're just getting absorbed. I mean, New York doesn't have the ability to then take them and ship them somewhere else. At least that's my understanding. We don't, as a municipality, we don't normally have that. It's not part of our portfolio. It's not something we do on the normal. This is our response to the influx that we have coming through our community. They're giving us a destination in New York. That's where we're sending them. And we're seeking reimbursement. So there was nothing up front for us. So I'd suspect that New York has those same options. But nobody in New York has tried to ship them back to you and said, gosh, we've already accepted 50,000 people find someplace else. We have not seen that yet, but I keep getting the question. So, <laughs> One last area, if I could, just for a second. I have to say, you guys are very, very impressive. I mean, this is a much healthier, much better managed story than I expected when we first set it up. And I'm very proud of the work you guys are doing and how calm and methodical and the way you integrate non-governmental organizations and charitable organizations and the federal government all into one thing. But the one other thing I want to ask you about is that there's a sense that's certainly part of the national news stories that with the border this open, we're getting a staggering number of drugs coming across the border, not necessarily in El Paso, but I think 
So far in 2022, we've seized 601,000 pounds of drugs on the southern border, 11,000 pounds of that being fentanyl, which was more than enough fentanyl to kill every person in the country. The cocaine seizures have increased by 193% in the last year. Methamphetamine decreased by 44%. Heroin decreased 10%. Fentanyl increased 6%. Are you seeing a significant flow of drugs in El Paso, or is that mostly in other parts of the border? You know, they do what they do. See, Customs and Border Patrol will announce when they have those large seizures along the border. They do kind of go different areas of the border. So we just saw some big ones come out this week alone, I believe, was in Arizona. And so they are doing that. And, and what we're hearing from the intel is it's just that. So the people are moving. They're not actually crossing through a border point. They're coming in a legal point. That focuses all the federal issue forces on there. And that's why they're trying to use their bridge systems to actually transport. They have sophisticated systems on the bridges, but we still see it all the time. We're hearing about these numbers. As far as here locally, I haven't seen any large, not that I'm aware of in recent times. Now, what we did to in talking to the federal government, not only on these reimbursements and different ways where we can continuously improve the process, because they're interested in doing that as well. We've had the discussion about efficiency versus just shifting the paradigm. If we make it more efficient, then the flow might increase and they see that as well. So that's a concern of theirs also. So that's, a, I think, a better approach and a pragmatic way of looking at it. So one of the questions we asked of them just this morning was, you know, if the numbers continue to this degree, maybe the Afghan model needs to be put in place where you did have a sheltering process at Fort Bliss and that would help us long term. And that could be augmented to what we're doing so that we can just add to what we're doing and then making that process better. If indeed we want to make it better because the flow, like the chief said, this is not sustainable long term for us as a city operation because it'll impact other operations that we provide to our citizens here. But that's another option that we threw out there. And then the second option that we threw out for their consideration was add more CBP officers. I know that's a very simple type of recommendation, but adding more CBP officers would not only help them with the flow, but it would also help with processing not only for from a security standpoint, but, but from an operational standpoint. So it would really address a lot of issues that have been raised by both sides in America. Have either you or your mayor actually talked with Mayor Adams in New York? In a way, he's sort of your biggest customer. He sent a delegation down to El Paso. And so we did actually meet with his delegation. We had some conversations about it. But going back to that original charter that we sent, we didn't just send them. We actually made contact with the watch desk for the New York City Emergency Management Office. And we also made contact with the local NGO. So I believe it's Granny's Respond out in New York City. We did contact them, let them know. We give them a manifest. These are the people on the bus. These are their ages. General information like that and an estimated time of arrival. Since then, that mayor's delegation came down. We had conversations. We now make sure that we also include them in those email notifications. It's a lot of texting back and forth, but it's letting them know what's coming. As far as them saying that they have capacity, I understand their concerns. We're just trying to connect the people passing through our community to where they want to go. Well, listen, Tommy and Mario, I want to thank you for joining me. This has actually been very educational, and you clearly are right on ground zero. It's amazingly complex. And I think your point that you have this two-country metroplex that is astonishingly right at the center of an amazing number of things going on. So I hope that the federal government and the Biden administration will consider things like this podcast and rethink 
the scale of investment we need to make at the federal level to keep this thing manageable. Because if we're not going to find a solution which closes the border, we're going to have to have a lot better orderly process of managing the scale of people. Gallup once did a world poll and said, you know, how many of you would like to move to the U.S.? And 165 million people. So they thought that'd be terrific. So the more the borders open, the more people are going to say to each other, you know, I've always wanted to go and visit my cousin. And as you just pointed out, they think their cousin's in New York. So Mayor Adams may have a bigger interest in getting this solved than you do. But I really appreciate the two of you taking the time to help educate us. And I thank you for your commitment to citizenship and your commitment to making the city work. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk about what's going on in El Paso. There's a lot of great things going on here. This is something that has to be managed, and we're stepping up to do that. But there's also a lot of other great things happening here that I think people need to know about as well. But thank you for making time for us and to sharing our story with everyone. Thank you to my guests, Tommy Gonzalez and Mario D'Agostino. You can learn more about the migrant crisis in El Paso, Texas at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newtsworld, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Storm and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.